Good morning. Welcome to Rethink Church. I'm going to invite you guys to stand up with us this morning as we worship. Come let us worship our King. Come let us bow at His feet. He has done great things. Oh, see what our Savior has done. See how his love overcomes. He has done great things. He has done great things. Oh, hero of heaven, you conquer the grave. You free every captive and break every chain, oh God. You have done great things. We dance in your freedom, awake and alive. Oh, Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high. Oh, God, you have done great things. Amen. You've been faithful through every storm. You'll be faithful forevermore. You have done great things And I know you will do it again For your promise is yes and amen You will do great things God, you do great things Oh, hero of heaven, you conquer the grave you free every captive and break every chain, oh God. You have done great things. We dance in your freedom, awake and alive. Oh Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high, oh God. You have done great things. Sing hallelujah. Hallelujah, God, above it all. Hallelujah, God, unshakable. Hallelujah, you have done great things. Oh, hallelujah, God, above it all. Hallelujah, God, unshakable. Hallelujah, you have done great things. You've done great things. Oh, hero of heaven, you conquer the grave. You free every captive and break every chain, oh God. You have done great things. We dance in your freedom, awake and alive. Oh Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high, oh God. You have done great things. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, all oh, my soul. Rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul. Rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear.
Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Will you pray with me? Abba, Father, we love you. Uh, we thank you so much that you love us, that you would pursue us. Um, again, God, everyone here this morning, uh, we come with different baggage, different joys, different pains. You know us all intimately, God. And wherever we are today, I pray that you would meet us, God. If we need to be lifted up, if we need to be picked up, I pray that you would do that, God. If we need uh, an applause, if we need a smile, um, if we just need encouragement, God, I pray that we can get that this morning. Thank you so much for this fellowship, this time that we can honor and glorify you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. In the darkness we were waiting Without hope, without light Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From the throne of endless glory To a cradle in the dirt So praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three and one. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. To reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost. To redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side. Knowing this was our salvation, Jesus for our sake you died. Amen. So praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three and one. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. In the morning that you rose, all of heaven held its breath Till that stone was moved for good, for the Lamb had conquered death And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe For the souls of all who'd come to the Father are restored and the church of Christ was born, then the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, it shall not faint. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected me. Amen. So we praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. Sing praise the Father. Oh, praise the Father, 
Praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings, praise forever to the King of kings. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Welcome Abby to the stage. <laughs> Good morning, guys. Welcome to church. If you're new or visiting with us, come visit us at guest services after the service. We have a gift for you guys for being here. Um, a couple of quick announcements. The first being next week is our teen night on the 25th. Uh, so Sunday, uh, they are going to be meeting at Stardust Bowl to go bowling together. Uh, so from 5.30 to 7 next Sunday, mark your calendars. Uh, be sure to be there if you are, I believe, 7th grade and up through high school. Um, it'll be a fun time, so uh, come join us for that. Um, and then I did want to make a note. This morning's message is PG-13 again, so uh, please utilize our kids' ministry uh, unless you want to have more fun conversations at home later. Um, and then next week is our Mission Sunday, which means uh, we take a special offering for uh, Destiny Rescue, which is a ministry that helps rescue children out of sex trafficking. Uh, so really be praying throughout this next week to ask God um, what he would like you to do to be a part of um, the mission that Destiny Rescue is doing, if you are, um, what you should give. Um, and then uh, Rush is going to be playing a video here behind me. Um, this is the is the Judean desert, um, and pretty soon here you're going to see uh, where they reach the uh, En Gedi, which is an oasis in the middle of this desert. Um, it's fresh water just streaming forth in the middle of this desert place, and that just doesn't happen overnight. Um, the water traveled 20 years underground from where it initially fell, and it just kind of goes to show us that it, the true, same is true in our lives. The things that we're investing in now um, are going to have an impact in our lives down the line, 20 years down the line, 30 years, 40 years. Um, it really matters what you're doing now down the line. Um, so just really pray and think through, like, what am I investing in? Am I investing in earthly things, or am I investing in the kingdom and things that are eternal? Um, so if you want to partner with the work we're doing here at Rethink Church, we do have two ways you can give. You can either give in person. Uh, we have the black box that's attached to the wall next to the door, or you can give online at rethinkchurch.cc. Uh, we're really glad you could join us this morning. Uh, lean in as Mark comes up and shares uh, the sermon. our church, and I'm glad you spent some time in this time. So uh, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be fun. It's going to be okay, though. It's going to be one of those days you're like, I didn't know that was about church. So uh, today is the day that we're going to have the talk. Um, and if you've had the talk before, if you're a parent and you've had the talk, here's the encouragement. Keep having the talk. So when we decided to do this series multiple times every year, like every other year type thing, uh, one of the things that we wanted to decide as a church was like, hey, we're not just going to say, we've already had the talk, we don't need to have the talk with our church again. Parents, this is true as well, because here's what I've noticed. When the church and the Christ followers are silent about a topic, it's not like the topic goes away. It's not like people never hear about the topic. Does that make sense? Whatever the topic is. So if we're silent as Christians and as a church, then all of a sudden the voices of culture and the voices of the world and the voices of the enemy start to get louder, and they start making more sense, more sophisticated, more enlightened uh, experiences and stuff like that. Meanwhile, the church and the Christians are like, mm, that, that we're not going to talk about this topic. So parents, have the topic, have this talk with your kids multiple times. It's not a one-time awkward conversation. 
Does that make sense? <clears throat> Enjoy the embrace the awkwardness as parents all throughout the time. Does that make sense? So uh, just get used to it. And it's part of life. When I was a student ministries pastor in Florida, um, <clears throat> part of what I would like to do is uh, somehow we had this weird connection with the uh, school systems, and it was a inherited. So like when I got hired on the staff, <clears throat> the previous pastors had already established this. I just kind of stepped in. But what we'd do is I'd go into public schools, middle school and high schoolers, and we would have conversations with kids and in-school suspensions. And the topic was the, the idea of abstinence, which in a public school for a pastor, they knew I was a pastor, to come in and teach public school kids who are already in trouble for whatever reason about abstinence was awesome. It wasn't, it wasn't awkward at all, right? Uh, but it gave me an idea of like, I can't just say, hey, you should, should do this or shouldn't do this because the Bible says so. Guess what happened? They didn't care what the Bible said. And our culture doesn't care what the Bible said. Does that make sense? Like this, this idea that the Bible says something so it settles everything, that's been gone for at least 20 years. The church is now starting to wake up to this. Does that make sense? Uh, but as, an early, as, a, as a youth pastor early on in my days, I realized like, oh, I had to somehow earn the right for them to like listen to me. Does that make sense? I couldn't just simply say, well, I'm a pastor, so you have to listen to me. Which, by the way, I was like 22, 23 years old the crap that I know. Um, so I was like making crap up as we want. Does that make sense? And then I was like, well, that didn't work. So I would go back to my office. I would study, but how do I actually do this? Uh, and so what I started to realize, there's two things that I started understanding. First of all, every single session, every, every new group, I would start it off the same way. Repeat after me. You don't have to do this right now, but repeat after me. Penis, vagina, penis, vagina. That's how we started off. and kind of broke the tension. It was awkward. It was funny. They're like, there's like teacher was like, what the crap is going on? Like, uh, they'd call the principal down, the principal would be like, yeah, we asked him to show up. You know what I mean? And he didn't say anything technically wrong. So the other thing that I realized is I could easily somehow speak into an issue without the Bible, but I could still tell them what the Bible said. There's still Christ-like biblical values that we understand, that we have kind of an understanding of it, but we don't need to say this is what the Bible says. Somehow we can... We can demonstrate it. We can have the conversation. And one of the things I want us to understand is that this is the, the foundation of what we launch out uh, after these things, was that the idea, the, the, the act of sex is not a physical act only. That the act of sex is so much more than physical. And, and we know this, but we don't really know this. It's something we have ingrained in us, but we don't necessarily like to have the reality of it. We like to say, no, no, it's just physical, right? It's just mutual and stuff like that. So I would ask the question, let's just play this out. <clears throat> if there's two consenting adults, nobody got manipulated, nobody got tw- tricked into this, it wasn't like you had somebody on your roster, you're like, hey, let me see if I can just, you know, have my way with this person and then ghost them for the next six months. You know what I mean? No STDs were passed around, no kids were made, all that. Is it just a physical thing? Or can you just move on and be like, oh, like a wrestling match. I guess I lost that one. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and stuff like that. Or is there something else that is, is, is there? And I think deep down inside we know it, but we don't necessarily like to admit it. And we don't necessarily like to acknowledge it. One of the things I would say is, and this is the same, same argument or whatever you want to call it, is when there's victims of sexual abuse, why, don't, why, don't the, like, why, why do counselors get involved? Can't they just outgrow it? Doesn't the scar just go away like, a, like you put a Band-Aid on it and just say, oh, let's go, just walk it off? Why do we encourage counseling for some victims of sexual abuse? Because deep down inside, we know it's not just physical. Does that make sense? How inhumane and cruel would it be for an adult to get involved and be like, just walk it off? We'd probably report those people, wouldn't we? We'd have an issue with it. We'd, we'd have a, 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 a rub or whatever you want to call it, like a, a thing against that. And so... We don't do that. Why? Because sex is so much more than just a physical act. Um, <clears throat> and I think one of the reasons that people don't necessarily treat it with a, with a, a gift like type thing or a priceless type thing is we don't necessarily know the value of it. We don't understand how great of a value it is. And so we just mistreat it. We just kind of use it around, like, act like it's not that big of a deal. Uh, when I was in college, I was on tour with this, I was a sound engineer, I was on tour with this band and one of the band members had a friendship, like a personal friendship with Bob Taylor from Taylor Guitars, uh, who makes custom-designed guitars and stuff like that. 
<coughs> sorry. Um, and uh, so we are going through this, to this tour, and it was like 2001. Um, and so we're in the summer of 2001, we're walking through, and we found, like, we, it was an amazing tour, by the way. It was bro I was like, man, I could quit college right now and go work here. Like, probably would be whatever. But, like, I was like, I think I could do this. But uh, for whatever reason, we didn't. Um, and so we get to the end of the tour, and there's a rack of, like, 10 to 15 guitars. They all look the same. They all have, like, the same signature kind of color scheme and stuff like that. And my friend Eric, who's a, a brilliant musician, walked over and picked it up, picked one of them up out of the rack. I went over and picked one of them out of the rack. And Bob gently and firmly looked at us and said, pretty much, hey, moron, put it back. Like, you have no clue what you're even touching here. And we didn't. But Jewel, the artist, was getting ready for her tour. And she had these custom designed, to, like, unique guitars for her tour that were essentially priceless. Right? And when he looked at it, he said, if you damage this, you, there's no way you can even fix this. You guys wouldn't even be able to afford to cover the cost. And I was like, hmm. Now imagine if you're like, well, now, now I know it, but I'm going to start passing it around to everybody else, right? And we just mishandled the gift, as priceless as it was to us, because the college students, right? And here's the deal. Every single one of us has a gift that is way more valuable than a, a custom guitar. And the question is, do we actually handle it with care? Do we understand the value of it and stuff like that? Um, and so when we put it into, into proper ideas of what the value of it is, is we understand uh, the, 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 the preciousness of it and, and the stuff like that. And what my hope today is that we can at least walk out of here and say, man, sex is so much more than physical. And there's a priceless gift to it. Uh, and it's not just, it's just not out there, uh, but it's a gift that God gave to us. And it's by his design. Did you know that in creation, there was a time without sex? Think about that. In creation, there's a time without sex when God made Adam and he was like, something's missing, right? And so he created humans, Eve, out of, out of his ribs and stuff like that. And then somehow there's no instruction manual, but they figured it out, right? Think about that. Like for, for the animals, it was like reproduction and all this. But for the humans, this gift that God designed for us and left no instruction manuals and somehow we figured it out is not just for reproduction. It's for joy. It's for pleasure. It's for intimacy, Right? And then God says, like, there's no instruction manuals for Adam and Eve. And then he says, by the way, like, towards the end, the two become one flesh. Right? And this concept that Moses picks up on is, is there as well. Uh, one of the arguments about Christianity and Judaism that people continually say is that these two religions that are very connected, closely connected are man-made religions to control and manipulate other people. Man, let's think this through, Okay. If you're Moses and you go up on the mountain by yourself and there's no witnesses and God gives you instructions and you write, like, carry the tablets down, right? Would you write down and command the nation of Israel, women, children, and everything, to follow the rules that God, that God told Moses to do this if you're trying to manipulate and influence and control a group of people? And what do we see in the Ten Commandments? No adultery, no coveting, and stuff like that, Right? Look at every other world religion around us. Look at every pagan cult, like cult. And what do we have? Men who go up on a mountain and God tells them, if you want to follow me, if you want to be part of my group and stuff like that, cult leaders tell women, you have to sleep with me. Logically speaking, though, Moses goes up on this mountain and he comes back with some of the strictest countercultural rules about marriage and sex around the whole world, that whole region and stuff like that. <clears throat> And so because of this, I, like, I continually look at that and say, if you, have, if you want to question the Bible, argue the Bible, and stuff like that, you must not have read the Bible. Like if I was a man-made, if it, I was making it my own religion, there's no way I would limit the sex as, as strict as Moses did. Does that make sense? And so this is one of those things. Um, it's d down in our DNA and stuff like that. Moses says this. Jesus picks up on it. Um, <clears throat> and then Paul, this early church writer, picks up on it as well. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. He says this. Paul's, like, Paul's writing this now. Let me give us the, the context of the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church were horrible at being good Christians. All right? And they lived in a city that was sophisticated, that was enlightened, that filled with dozens and dozens of temples to pagan gods in the Greek mythology. 
And the way that you would worship these pagan gods in the Greek mythology was you would essentially hire a shrine prostitute. You'd go burn some incense to her or to them, and then you'd hire the shrine prostitute, and that was an act of worship. To hire the shrine prostitute, and you didn't sit down and have coffee with the shrine prostitute, right? You just had sex, and that was an act of worship. And somehow, Paul shows up, and he speaks about the Christian religion and stuff like that. <clears throat> and in this world, there's this, this like, it's so uh, elite type thing. Like, there's a whole archaeological design, architectural design about the Corinthian design, about how elaborate it was, how detailed it was, and stuff like that. And so they're enlightened, they're sophisticated. They're the ones who conquered the Jewish people. So think about this. Here's a Jewish rabbi telling, uh, telling this group of Corinthians, our gods are more powerful than your gods. Not if you look at the track record of the wars. Does that make sense? So here's Paul speaking into this group of Christians who really struggled at being good Christians. They could not be faithful. They just continually ever feel like you can't be faithful and you just constantly do the wrong thing. And things you don't want to do, you end up doing those things anyway. This is how Paul's speaking into this, right? And he's speaking into them, and here's what he says to this group of Christians, uh, Christians living in Corinth. Do you not know that the one who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it says, and he's quoting all the way back in Genesis, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one, one with him in spirit. He says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price or at a price. <clears throat> Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So, Here's this line that we, that we continually use, the two will become one flesh. Paul's reaching all the way back into Genesis chapters 1 and 2, saying, oh, this is the standard. This is what it looks like. And so we have this idea of, like, uh, what does it look like to be sexually moral? In the biblical understanding, the Christ-like understanding of what it means to be sexually moral, it's in the context of marriage of one man and one woman. That's the standard. That's the idea, right? Anything outside of that is what the, the biblical authors would say were sexually immoral. So if you're, if you're one man and one woman, but you're not inside marriage, you're, out, you're sexually immoral. If you're anything, other combinations you want to throw out there, you're sexually immoral. Does that make sense? So Paul's saying, here it is, this is the sexually, this is the sexually moral standard of what it looks like to be in, in the standards of Christ, uh, Christ-likeness in the Bible. Okay? Moses understood this, Jesus understood this, Paul understands this. Somehow in our church in this culture, in our modern-day culture, we've somehow confused this. And we're like, well, it's okay because you have urges and stuff like that. No. We have to go back to the standard. What's the standard say? What does Jesus say? What does Moses say? What does Paul say? What does Peter say? Here's the standard, right? <clears throat> Anything outside of that, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to manage our desires? Are we supposed to resist, like, just go back to the, go up to the line and see how close you can get? What's he say here? To flee. Flee does not mean tiptoe around it. Flee means to literally turn around and run as if your life depended on it. Does that make sense? Most of us in our culture, though, what do we do? We're trying to constantly see how much we can manage, just our good behavior, our discipline, and stuff like that. And so we just constantly creep up to this idea of how far is too far, what does it look like. We try to manage our sin and our sexual desires and stuff like that. And what Paul understands here is that there's something way different than what any other sin right, uh, is in there. He puts sin into two categories in this passage. There's sexual sin, and then there's all other sins. All other sins, you're sitting outside of your own body. Inside of the, the idea of sexual sins, though, he's, you're sinning against yourself. And not only against yourself, but you're sinning against like, what God has designed you to be and who, who God's designed you to be. So every time we like struggle with this, we just kind of give into it, you're, you're actually damaging, damaging yourself. When we walk around and act like if sex is just a physical thing, guess what we end up doing? We end up hurting ourselves. We end up hurting our future marriages. We end up hurting our future children and our grandchildren and stuff like that. It's just a physical act, though. But what Paul uses here is this word that just, con like it just comes up over and over again. He uses this over and over again in his letters. And so 
uh, what he uses here is uh, this word, and he, goes, he says this, do you not know that the one who unites with a prostitute? Now imagine you're the Corinthian church, you're in a house church, and there's guys and girls like this, whatever. Imagine being the Corinthian guy going, Paul, can I ask questions? Do you know the Greek language? Like, I don't know if he meant to use this word, because they're sophisticated, they're enlightened, they're like, they're higher educated than Paul in their mindset, right? <clears throat> and he, they understand that Greek's, Greek's not Paul's primary language. Maybe he doesn't know what he's using, the word here, right? And they're like, whoa, whoa, the word you just used is like taking two metals and putting them into one. It's like fusing something that are two separate and putting them together. It's like taking this idea of intertwining and becoming a oneness. I don't think that's what you meant here, Paul. It's just sex. And Paul's like, no, no, that's exactly what I meant. The idea of fusing two metals together is what this word is here that, God, that Paul uses for unite. And we're just like, no, no, it's just physical. It's just, that's how we worship, right? And Paul's like, mm-mm. You don't worship Jesus and pagan gods. You don't worship Jesus and your status. In the Corinthian culture, in the Corinthian understanding, if you do not participate in the pagan god worship of the Greek mythology, you weren't invited into the marketplace. If you weren't invited into the marketplace, then you weren't invited into the bathhouses. And where the bathhouses, all the business decisions were made, and all the ideas of like, how do we get status, how do we do this? <clears throat> so what Jesus is, like the Jesus communities were literally self-reliant, saying, we're really going to trust you, Jesus. We're not going to worship Jesus and anything else. We would never do this in 2024, though. We, we're smarter than this. We don't worship Jesus and our bank accounts, do we? We don't worship Jesus and our status and our job situations. We don't worship Jesus and how our kids perform and behave around us, do we? Right? So what Paul is saying, no, no, like when you unite, you're uniting yourself with a prostitute. And it's not just physical. There's two ways of having birth control in the, in the ancient world. Shrine prostitutes were just seen as birth control, and so were slaves. And almost every household had a slave system. Slaves weren't people, they were property in the ancient world. And so if a, if a head of the household, the, the, head, the husband wanted to go have sex with the slave, he's not being unfaithful to his wife, he's just taking out the urges there and not producing a, a firstborn son. Anything beyond the firstborn son would dilute the inheritance. So it was birth control. So that's, what, that's all he's doing in their mindset. And Paul's like, no, no, you're uniting. The idea of superglue, right? They didn't have superglue back in the day, but it was the idea of superglue. And what happens when you take something and you adhere it with superglue and then you rip it off? Is there some damage? Does it always come off cleanly? It's not like a 3M hook, right? Not really. So when you constantly do this over and over and over again, you're leaving pieces with you and you're taking pieces of that, con that surface with you and constantly doing this. And will you ever adhere completely and cleanly to the next thing? Not really. There's always going to be some separation. There's always going to be some, some jaggedness to it. There's always going to be some pieces that are left that you took off on as well. And this is what Paul's saying. He's like, when you, do you not understand that when you unite with a prostitute, you're uniting yourself with them in a permanent way and in a, in a oneness? And the question you would ask here is like, how do you unwind the one? If you become one with somebody, how you unwind with them? And so this is that concept that, we're, that we have to look into, that the two will become one flesh. And it's this idea of intimacy. Like, here's, here's why we talk about this. I want you to have the best sex you could possibly have within the context of marriage. And sex is so much more than a physical issue. It's so much more than that, this idea of intimacy. And here's the deal. Like, when you treat it as just physical, when you just think, oh, it's just a physical act, right? And you get married based on the idea of physical acts and stuff like that, because, man, we have great sex, we should get married. Which is sometimes a logical, like, not logical in a sense, but people literally come to me and say, when I say, for pre-marriage counseling, hey, why don't we get married? I've heard this before as a pastor. Oh, we have great sex, we just have marriage. We should just get married. At some point, your idea of great sex is going to run out. And what do you do then? What do you, how do you handle a marriage when you just had great sex with that person? Like, by the way, that's like, man, I love the color of the car, but the engine is crap, but I love this color, right? That's, that's the idea. When you buy a car, do you really care about the color if the engine's shot? Probably not, hopefully not, right? Unless 
Yeah, anyway, so uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of things I could say. I'm just going to rein this in. So at some point, when you base a relationship and intimacy off of just a great sex, you lo- it runs out. And then you know what you have? You have a sexless marriage. And then you sit in a sexless marriage with no intimacy and no romance, and you're like, you're basically roommates at this point. And it's going to cost you a lot to get a divorce. And how do you unwind the one and all this other stuff? And so if you're in here and you're just single and you're dating, don't base a relationship based on just great sex. Find other ways to be intimate. Find other ways to do this. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit and stuff like that. Um, and here's the deal. If I was in your shoes and I wasn't a follower of Jesus or was exploring this, I'd have some questions. I'd understand the pushback. Because this is an extremely countercultural view. It goes against everything in our culture, doesn't it? It was for the First Corinthian church. It was for us, and I get it. It was for my students when I was uh, in Florida and stuff like that. I may not be able to understand, like, like explain all of your arguments, uh, but here's the deal. Sexuality is connected to your personhood and it's connected to your soul at a core level that you may not even understand right now. Sometimes we don't understand things until we get older, do we? And then you're like, oh... And I'd really hate for you to get older and have these aha moments filled with a ton of regrets. I'd love for you to have these aha moments with very little to zero regrets in your life. Um, <clears throat> and so Paul goes on to explain something to, and he separates the, the grouping here. He's addressing, non, he's, he's addressing Christians. And he separates this with this phrase here. He says, do you not know? And he, he addresses only Christians. Paul does not expect non-Christians to behave like Christians. Does that make sense? So when Paul addresses these issues within these next few moments, he expects non-Christians to behave like non-Christians would. Keep going to the shrine process, doing all this, but once you become a Christian, there's something you should understand, and it changes your behavior, it changes your life. Here's what he says, verse 19. Do you not know? There it is again, right? They didn't know. Maybe you don't know this either, but let's just walk into it. Uh, that your bodies are now the temples of the Holy Spirit. That once you become a follower of Jesus, you become inhabited by the Holy Spirit. So if you become inhabited by the Holy Spirit, can you really be, like in their context, could you become one with the shrine prostitute who's representing another deity? Not really. In our context, can you just become one with somebody you don't know their faith? Can you become one? If you have two Christians who aren't married, what do you do then? Well, the next right step is get in the context of marriage. That's what that really looks like, right? Um, and so they didn't know this and all this. and they didn't, The Corinthian church, man, they were like, no, no, the gods live in the temples. They don't live in us. But Yahweh himself says, no, I want to be with my people. And the idea first was with the garden. And then humanity sinned, and we, removed, we moved away from God because we were like, oh, we get to decide what's right and wrong in our own terms. And God's like, no, no, I want to be with my people. So first it was a tabernacle, then it was a temple. And after the day of Pentecost, where does the Holy Spirit fall? It doesn't fall on a temple and saturate a temple. It saturates the followers of Jesus. So wherever you go as a follower of Jesus, you bring with you the Holy Spirit. So should you honor God with your, with your life, with your bodies, and with everything around you, or should you just live by your own standards? And this is one of those things that just goes in, in, the, face of, um, in the face of everything. And so here's the deal, though. We, we live in, like, in our culture, and we have this understanding that all I have to do is show up to church, and that's one hour out of 168 hours. I show up to church, I worship Jesus, I sing the song, I, I listen to this bald man with a beard to preach, talks about weird things, sometimes he says weird things, and it's like, well, I didn't know that was going to be talked about, and then he does, and I get like, I, I ask for Jesus for forgiveness, and then at 1130, I'm going to go out, and sometimes we really try to follow Jesus, don't we? And that trying only handles for about 12, 12 hours, and then you wake up, somebody cuts you off on the way to work, and then all of a sudden you say a word that whatever comes out of your mouth, and it's like, oh, I didn't mean that one. Uh, and then you tell them they're number one, all this other stuff as they cut you off, and you show up, and that trying to be more Jesus-like has gone out the door. And so now all of a sudden, you're back to living the life that we ever want to, 
And so then you live, like let's say by Wednesday or Thursday, you're watching whatever you want to watch, you're saying whatever you want to say, you're drinking whatever you want to drink, you're looking up those websites you don't want to look like, like you're just living however you want to live, right? Not by Christ's standards, by your standards. But then you just know by 1030 in the mor- on Sunday morning, you just have to show up to church, listen to the songs, and like we ask for forgiveness and all this. And we just repeat over and over again. We ignore the fact. We think that Holy Spirit lives in here and doesn't look at what you're looking, like how you live your life. That somehow God is confined into this nice little building and doesn't see how you live your life. We may not say it like that because we know what the Bible says, but we may live it like that. And so we, we go around and we just do this. And so Friday night, Saturday night, we just do whatever we want. Imagine, going back into the Corinthian context, imagine that the first, the, the first Corinthian church guy, he's sitting and listening to all this, and he raises his hand, he's like, Paul, I don't think you understand this. It's just physical. It's just sex. There's no love involved. There's no uniting involved. It's just, just two physical bodies having whatever they want. You know what I mean? Um, and we all have urges and stuff like that. In verse 19, Paul says this, Your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, who lives within you, who you received from God. In other words, Holy Spirit literally lives in you. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Once we, follow, once we accept Jesus and we confess our sins, we become Christians, we don't live by our own standards. Because Jesus on the cross paid a price that we could never even pay for. And the beautiful thing about the gospel, the beautiful thing about what Jesus did, does on the cross and sent Holy Spirit is this twofold act is that he pays for the penalty of our sin that we can never pay for, but then he also enables us to live freely, free from the bondage of sin of this world. That you may live in this world, but you don't have to live by the world's standards anymore. That you get to walk around and say, the culture may do this, but I don't have to do this. Right? <clears throat> but it takes us understanding this idea And then we have to, we have to get to the point where we determine the story that we want to tell. Let's let's just play this out, okay? Let's say you're you're in the process of dating, you're single for whatever reason, um, and you're wanting to get married, you're wanting to, whatever, I don't care, like, get married, I guess. And so you want to determine, like, determine what story you want to tell the person, right? There's one story that you could tell. Yeah, I just live my life around and I got really great at sex. This is an argument I hear all the time from the infinite wisdom of high school students, that they want to get really great at sex so that when they get married, they don't look dumb. And here's what I would encourage every time I hear this, look stupid. Look stupid together. Nobody on their honeymoon is like, man, I'm so glad you perfected that mood. Like, you spent, you, count, you went around countless partners, you perfected that one move, I'm so glad you did that. But now that you're married to me, you, it's, it's all like, that doesn't happen, right? And they think, in their high school wisdom, and, and it's not just high schoolers anymore, it's like everybody, I think, uh, culturally speaking, that they think once they get married, they can flip a switch and learn how to be loyal. They learn how to be faithful. They learn what exclusivity really means. And they have this understanding that sex is what really what drives romance and intimacy and marriages and stuff like that. And it's not. It's exclusivity. It's the idea that you can trust when you pick up your spouse's phone that there's no weird conversations going on. That when you look through their search history, you're like, hmm, there's nothing there. Looking at barbecue. Not (laughs) whatever else. You want to know what I mean? Um, Or you're like, hey, you're going to go on a business trip. And there's no, I wonder what they're doing on this business trip. Where are they going to go? How are they going to spend their time? Right? Like you have this idea of, yeah, I can trust you. When it gets to the point of sexless marriages and lack of intimacy, you know, what, well, you know what fuels that world? Mistrust. You can't trust them at all. You look up and you're like, who's that text to? Who's te- who are you texting right now? And they can't just give you a clear understanding and explanation. And they don't just turn the phone over and be like, hmm. Right? There's all this hiding and stuff like that. And, and you live in secret worlds. And we, we don't like to admit it, but sometimes we like to se- segregate our world in such a way that like, when that person, that your spouse gets into that part of the world, you're like, mm, nope. Right? But that's part of this. When, you, when they step into your world, there's transparency, there's vulnerability, and you're okay with it. That's what fuels intimacy. Not great sex. Not that one move. Whatever. You know what I mean? Um, and so... Figure out what story you want to play. Do you want to, you want to sit across the table and say, man, 
I'll be loyal to you because now I have this, I have this ring on my finger and I said those vows. Remember, promises don't make you capable, they make you accountable. And this is the idea. Or you can tell this other story. You can tell the story, man, I just showed up to this church one day and this guy had a big beard and bald head. He said some things and it just kind of made sense. And all of a sudden I was like, hmm, am I the person the person I'm looking for is looking for? And maybe I want to decide, I want to pre-decide what it looks like for me to be loyal to you. So instead of trying to find the right person, I decided I was going to become the right person. And I made a decision at that point that I was going to learn how to become exclusive, even with my sexual life, to you. Before I even met you, before I even knew who you were, I became the right person. I became the, the person that would, would be trustworthy, that would be exclusive, that didn't mentally undress people. That I learned how to like value people and view people the way that God viewed people. Right? And so this understanding of I just wanted to get to that point, and then I met you, and I learned how to honor you and myself with the way we treated our bodies. And then under the, mar- the context of marriage, whenever that is, I'm not going to lose my virginity, because you don't lose your virginity, by the way. You typically give it away. Right? It's not something like, oh, I lost, the, I lost my keys. I wonder where they're at. Right? Um, it's typically how that phrase goes. Right? And this, this is the understanding of this. And for the Corinthian church, it was like, no, no, it's just a shrine prostitute. It's all this other stuff. For our context, it's like, oh, I met this guy at the bar, and one thing led to another. Or I don't even know her name, and I just saw her at spring break. But it's just, it's just physical, right? For the, for the people who want to tell the story of, like, I wanted to learn how to honor you, it doesn't just happen. You have to actually practice it. You have to prepare for what it looks like to do that. And so Paul and Jesus and Moses are understanding things that our neuroscience pathways are just starting to understand. That, that our sexual uh, memories are like anchor points. That when I say certain people's names or you see something, it's like an anchor point for your memories, and all of a sudden you bring all those memories flood back into your brain. Right? Paul and Jesus and Moses, they understood this. This is why they're like, hey, don't mistreat this gift. Hold on to it. And don't just like sleep around and hope for the best, right? Um, and, and if it's an idea of preference, this is the other argument that I usually get. It's an idea of preference. That, like this lifestyle is just a prefer- preferential lifestyle. Once again, I'm speaking to Christians, and if you're a non-Christian, you're just kind of exploring your faith, just listen in. Maybe you'll learn something, and hopefully it's helpful for you. But if it's just preferential, and you want to live your life the way that God lives, like lays it out in the Bible, great. If you think that your preference is this way, if it was just preferential, and then why are the outcomes predictable? Like, if I preferred to eat chips, soda, or pop, however you call it, I really don't care, um, or fatty foods and stuff like that, and I've decided this is what I prefer, so I'm going to eat like this, guess what the predictable outcome is? I'm going to struggle with weight, I'm going to struggle with, I'll have a heart attack by the time I'm 50 and all that, right? And so you'll be on pre-diabetic. It's not necessarily diabetic yet, but you're on that edge, Right? That, like, that's part of the predictable outcome. If, however, I'm like, hey, I'm going to eat whole grains, fruits and vegetables, which, whatever, you can choose if you want to eat a vegetable or not. I'd rather eat the food, like, not my food, eat not whatever. So, anyway, like, if you want to do that, and guess what happens if I eat this way, if I prefer this way and I eat this way? The predictable outcome is I'll be healthier. Does that make sense? The predictable outcome, if you want to continually live your life as if you're just like, hey, it's just physical and you sleep around and do whatever, the predictable outcome at some point, you're going to find yourself in counseling. You're going to wake up and be broken. You're going to wake up and be like empty. You're like, what in the world? How'd it happen here? And Paul and Jesus and Moses are like, told you guys, hope you listen, right? And here's the deal. When we, when we step into this idea of being a, a, into the, the following of Jesus and all this, we have to get to the point where we're not our own anymore. We are bought at a price. And it costs Jesus everything. But he, like we just sang the song about this, right? Um, and, and here's what I want to, here's what uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Jesus paid no attention to the shame on the cross. He suffered on that cross with all the shame that was there because of the joy that he was looking forward to, the salvation with you and I, to be restored with his, his creation. And then he sat down at the throne room of God. And he sat at the right hand. And, and he sat there and he's just like, it's done. So why would we go and dishonor his sacrifice, living however we want to live? And if you're in a marriage, 
figure out what it looks like to be intimate. Figure out how to fuel that with transparency and vulnerability. Don't have any secrets. And if you're here dating, decide now what story you want to tell. Decide now how you want to become one in the fullest context, not just the physical aspect. Because when it comes to the sex, when it, the act of sex and all this, it's, it's a gateway into deeper levels of intimacy. And it can be this beautiful thing or it could be this thing that ruins and destroys you when you find the one and you get married. But you have to decide now. We don't live by our standards anymore. We live by the kingdom standards. And the beautiful thing about this, no matter where we find ourselves in the spectrum of like, maybe we're, maybe we're still virgins, maybe we're passing around or whatever, and we're just walking around and treating it, mistreating it, there's grace upon grace upon grace. And the sins that Jesus died for weren't just the nice, clean ones. He died for all sins. And this could be the day that it's a new creation for you, that you can decide today, I'm not, I'm not going to live this way anymore. Let's pray, and the band's going to come up and lead us into worship. Jesus, thanks for this day. Thanks for who you are. And God, you know us, you designed us for great sex in the context of marriage. And Jesus, my prayer right now is that no matter where we are in this, this relationship and marriage thing, that we would make a decision right now that we would live by your design. That we would be intimate with our spouse. Transparency and vulnerability and all that other stuff. And the marriages would have the best sex in, in our church. Awesome, great, go do it. And if we're single and we're dating and we're trying to explore this idea and we'll make a decision right now that when, when we get married, We'll have some great sex as well, the way that you designed us to do it. And as we figure this out, God, would you set it up for the generations out of our, out of our generation? Would you break the chains of generational curses? Would our marriages set a foundation for their kids and their grandkids? That they can say, man, this was awesome. Something changed in my parents' and my grandparents' lives moving forward. Will you help us to live by your standards, not culture standards? We love you, Jesus. Continue to pray this. Amen. And um, as we sing this song, um, I'm going to invite you to sing it as a prayer for the person next to you. Uh, don't just say the words just to say them. But um, again, let this be an intimate prayer for the person to the right or to the left of you. shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, turn his face toward you and give you peace. Sing that again. Lord, bless you and keep you Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. 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 Amen.
shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, turn his face toward you and give you peace. children and their children and their children. May his favor be upon you in a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children. May his favor be upon you in a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children. May his favor be upon you in a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children, their children. May his presence go before you and behind you and beside you, all around you and within you. He is with you, he is with you in the morning, in the evening, and you're coming and you're going and you're weeping and rejoicing. He is for you, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you. He is for you, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you. Amen. 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 May his favor be upon you in a thousand generations, in your family, in your children, in their children, in their children. May his presence go before you and behind you and beside you, all around you and within you. He is with you, he is with you in the morning, in the evening, and you're coming and you're going and you're weeping and rejoicing. He is for you, 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 he is for you.
want you guys to know that God loves you. He's for you. And I know sometimes it doesn't feel like it, <laughs> but he is. And we care about you. Everyone in this room, we just prayed that prayer for each other. Know that God loves you generation after generation. He wants the best for you, the best sex life, the best marriage, the best relationship. He wants that for you. You have to believe it, and you have to pursue it. Guys, know that we love you. Rethink loves you, and we want the best for you. God has the best for you. So as you seek him, know that you will find it. Uh, if anybody wants a prayer, we can meet you in the back for prayer. Otherwise, have a, have a blessed week, guys. Know that God is for you. Amen.